I'm very pleased this afternoon to be joined by Sharon McMahon, a former law and government teacher who has built up a massive following teaching civics and providing basic information to people uh, who seem to crave it uh, when they can find it. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you uh, found your way to being a huge civics influencer, which I suspect you did not suspect was your path five years ago. Probably not. No. I mean, as you mentioned, I'm a longtime teacher, a longtime classroom teacher. So that's where a lot of my background knowledge in these topics uh, comes from, from obviously both university learning, but also uh, from the classroom. And I decided in 2020 that rather than get involved with um, a thousand different conversations on social media in which people were spewing nonsense, demonstrably false nonsense, uh, rather than get involved in all of those conversations, that I was just going to start making some fact-based, nonpartisan explainer videos about how things actually worked. And those videos became popular. They took off. I started getting lots of media requests um, where it turns out that there's just not a lot of places that somebody can go to get some of their basic questions answered in a way that doesn't feel like you're being judged or that you that you feel stupid for asking and uh, in a way that is accessible. So, you know, my very first video was about how the electoral college works. I, I was... Somebody on one of my friend's Facebook posts was commenting about how somebody might graduate from the electoral college. And I was like, listen here, that is not at all how that works. The electoral college is not a place you can go. It's not a university you could graduate from. But rather than argue with a stranger online, I decided that I would just start making content that had accurate information in it. And so that's what I have been doing, some version of that, including podcasting, working on a book, all those kinds of things for multiple years now. Do you still consider yourself a teacher? I do. That, yes. Yes, absolutely. That is how I view my role in the ecosystem. I'm not interested in being a politician. I'm not interested in being a journalist. Um, teaching is my skill and my passion. And that that is absolutely how I will probably always view myself. When you look around right now at this moment in the country's history, what do you see? Mm. That's a great question. And I suppose what somebody sees depends on what they're looking for, right? Isn't that true of many things in life that what we see depends on what we're looking for. So I see um, a number of things that I feel hopeful and encouraged by. And I see also a number of things that I find concerning uh, and that I feel like need to be addressed before, you know, before uh, they become much bigger issues. So some of the things that I feel hopeful about are the number of people who um, are interested in government, the number of people who are interested in making positive change, the number of people who realize like, I did not learn this in high school. And it is uh, now that I know I'm going to do something about it. Um, I'm hopeful about Gen Z who is one of the most politically aware and active uh, generations in human history. Uh, and so I'm hopeful about a number of things. I have concerns about the incredible level of um, harmful partisanship that is present in our current political discourse. And what I mean by harmful is that it does not lead to productive conversations and it does not lead to any kind of positive forward momentum on behalf of Americans. It is unproductive and is a waste of taxpayer money uh, when we're talking about Congress. So um, I don't think we're better off for hating our neighbors. I don't think we're better off when Congress has a, 
you know, 21% approval rating and spends all of their time arguing for TV cameras. So those are a few of the things that concern me, but I, I do remain hopeful that these things can change. We've had tough times before and we have changed for the better. I think that one of the great delusions foisted on the American people through, uh, sometimes I call it the Trump industrial complex, but through uh, a lot of the, uh, through a lot of the news media, is this idea that the conflict, the partisanship is normal and reflective of reality. Do you, do you find it to be, or do you find it to be illusory? I mean, for example, I appreciate that some people lose it completely on airplanes. And I've been, I've been hoping to see one of them, right, as a frequent flyer for some time, right, in the way that people see grizzly bears, right, in Yellowstone, right? I've wanted to see a Karen attack, right, in the wild, live, mm -hmm. Um, but I haven't, right? And in fact, right, though I read about and my algorithm feeds me a lot of stories about a lot of craziness and a lot of insanity, my lived experience does not compute with that, where I find most people to be civil, polite, normal not at each other's, not at each other's throats. And so how do we reconcile these two things in the moment through a historical context? Um, or, right, do you think about it, we're just in this completely new era bound together uh, through mediums where every fringe point of view is instantly amplified, circulated at a velocity that the truth can never hope to keep up with. And therefore, right, the liar with the biggest bullhorn is ultimately destined to prevail in any type of conversation in the public square concerning the public interest. I mean, how, how do you kind of sort through this era against what it is that you're trying to do. Politics to me is downrange of culture, right? And, and the big mistake is that so many cover it as if it creates culture. So where are we in the culture right now, historically against other periods in the in the country as you as you see it like any anything that inspires you worries you more mm. that's a great question uh it, it is a great question and i think a lot of people are still uh, sorting through because our technology to be able to talk to each other our technology to be able to make information go viral is so new in relationship to human history Right. So, of course, social media is very new in the broad scope of human history. And so what actually will happen um, is still a bit TBD. And anybody who claims to have the answers of like, here's what's going to happen. It's going to lead to the following 12 terrible things, the demise of humanity, or it's going to be the great uplift and we're all going to be better for it. I don't, I think all that is, is prognostication. You can't, we can't know these things yet. But what we do know is that we have an important role in shaping that outcome. It's our job to help shape that outcome rather than uh, viewing ourselves as helpless um, participants who have no ability to uh, change what might happen in the future. So in terms of where we are in comparison to a uh, historic context, of course, portions of where we are, like our technological development has never there's nothing to compare it to, you know, like you can compare it to the printing press or, you know, there's things you can try to extrapolate, uh, but it's none of it is a one-to-one. -one. That said, 
Is this the worst it has ever been in human history? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's not the worst it's been in the United States. It's not the worst that has been around the world. Uh, we have been far worse off than we are today. There was a time period in the mid-19th century in which violence inside the United States Congress was so prevalent that people were uh, beaten within an inch of their lives having and had to leave Congress for multiple years because their injuries were so severe inside the United States Capitol, one senator against a representative, um, that, that person who uh, engaged in beating the other member of Congress was investigated, and then Congress decided not to censure the person who was who beat the other person within an inch of their life. Um, and then rather than deal with any consequences, that person decided to quit Congress, but then ran for re-election and got re-elected. Okay, so there have been times, that's just one example of times where people, I mean, guns have been fired inside the United States Capitol. That is just one example of how um, times have changed for the better in many ways. And by the way, what they were fighting over was the right to enslave people. And so uh, has anybody been beaten within an inch of their life inside the U.S. Capitol over uh, in a fight over whether or not it is acceptable to own human beings this week? No. So by those types of measures, we are better off than we have been in the past. Um, obviously, the Civil War is a is is a, a case study for what happens when we have um, extreme factionalism and tribalism. Hundreds of thousands of people, somewhere between six and 700,000 people died because of that excess factionalism and tribalism. So it, you know, that that's one of the things that I see is a speeding train on this excessive factionalism and tribalism. Now, I'm not saying civil war is imminent. I'm not saying doom is at hand. What I am saying is that we have had moments in our history before in which our baser instincts, our default tribal settings, led us to the brink of disaster. And it just so happened that the Union held. And it just so happened that the North was better equipped than the South. But it could have turned out differently. And so consequently, those are chances that I'm not interested in taking. Those are risks that I'm not interested in participating in. So that's what I say, that's what I mean when I say we have an important role to play in the outcome. If we're just waiting for government officials to figure it out, well, I've just laid out the case of why government uh, Congress is uh, quite ineffective, right? If we're waiting for them to figure it out, that is that's that's bad news. Some members of Congress um, who are in charge of doing things like regulating technology have hearings in which they call up tech CEOs and then they ask them questions like, "Is TikTok Wi-Fi?" They don't understand the difference between TikTok and Wi-Fi. They thought TikTok was Wi-Fi, and. That's kind of a laughable example. I mean, it's a true example, but it's kind of an example of like, this is when you, to your point, these are not the people who are shaping culture, <laughs> right? Like these are the people who actually are getting paid um, by taxpayers who should avail themselves of the education that's readily available to distinguish between important things like, should we be regulating social media and what actually is Wi-Fi? I guarantee they have a 22-year-old staffer working in their office who could help them sort these things out. And the fact that they don't says a lot about them. These are the people in charge of regulating um, important things in the United States. So I agree with you that politics is downwind of culture, but I but I do think that our political discourse um, can and does impact culture uh, in some ways, and in in many ways it is uh, has not been a positive impact recently. We have a person 
And I just wonder how you see this. We have, a, we have a person who's being speculated about as a serious vice presidential candidate, Elise Stefanik, number three in the House leadership, who called the criminals convicted by juries of their uh, felonies on January 6th uh, hostages. Uh, and we have a candidate uh, also a VP front runner, Governor Haley, uh, in an even race in New Hampshire, according to some polls. And she's asked a direct question about, hey, what 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 caused the Civil War? And she didn't give the answer. And the answer, of course, is slavery. You can read Alexander Stevens' cornerstone speech, the vice president of the Confederacy, very clear what the what the war was about. Um, does it matter when a presidential candidate in 2024 just says that nah, it's about whatever you want it to be about? Mm. So does the remembrance of that event matter? Mm. Is it important? It is important. It absolutely matters. Yeah. Well, I mean, to be clear, as you mentioned, the Civil War was about slavery. <laughs> it was about some states wanting to enslave other humans. And, you know, another another uh, proof text of that is every single articles of, of secession that was filed by that were filed by the varying states, starting with you know, um, South Carolina and move, moving through the states that wanted to secede, they all said one of the reasons we want to secede is because we want the right to practice our own lifestyle and to maintain our property and have our slaves. So they didn't even at the time make any, you know, there were no illusions of like, oh, states' rights. No, that was all uh, uh, an intentional attempt to recast history after the fact, the lost cause. They decided that they were going to uh, try to make it seem as though it was the war of Northern aggression and that it was states' rights. So you're absolutely right that it was about slavery. And there's, there's a zillion other examples that we could both give about how we know that is true. But the question of whether full, complete, accurate history is important in the United States. Potential presidential candidate, neighborhood librarian, kindergarten teacher, whether any of these people are educating our young people or educating the population at large about American history um, and whether they are getting it right has always been important and will always be important. And one of the reasons for that is because people take action based on information they get from a respected leader. That's, that is human nature. We take actions based on information we get from somebody we respect. And if somebody respects a teacher or they respect a presidential candidate or they respect some, you know, college professor, somebody who tells them these things, a neighbor, and they take action based on those things. If those things end up being a lie, um, that has, can have tremendous consequences. And January 6th is a great example of what happens when people take action based on a lie. The, the lie being, you know, there's a number of lies that were told, but one of the lies being that Mike Pence had some kind of constitutional ability to not certify the election, that something, something was going to, some miracle was going to occur in the Capitol if we just, you know, storm in, if we just kidnap Nancy Pelosi, if we just get a gallows out here and hang Mike Pence, if we just invade with our weapons, if we just assault a bunch of police officers, then something can happen. But all of that, as we know, is a lie. None of those things, uh, you know, the ability to change the Constitution on a whim, that's not how that works. 
So people took actions based on a lie. And that has very real world consequences. Now, I'm not saying, not equivocating Nikki Haley's comment about the Civil War to January 6th. I'm not saying they are the same. I'm just saying what we say in the public square has real world consequences. Do you think there's a connection between those two things? Because I do see a through line in the cause that if you back up the January 6th crowd, are they not the same people that would have been in an anti-busing protest in the 1970s? Or are they not the same people that would have been in the schoolhouse door in the 1960s and in the 1950s and jeering Jackie Robinson and on and on and on back it goes. And because one of the one of the remarkable aspects, I think, of American history, and I wanted to ask you what, what it is that we should actually teach, right, mm -hmm. in, in school, right? It was that I wanted to talk to you about. I want to make an imaginary curriculum with you, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Of of studies while we're while we're doing this. But um you 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 look at this um you look at this moment of crisis in the in the country and you say well can it possibly be that the january 6th criminals uh, will be remembered or viewed as hostages and of course the answer to that is is, is yes um you talked about the lost cause when when ulysses s grant died in 19 in 1885, he's the most famous American in the world. There is no person of equal stature alive in the country. He is Lincoln's uh, political and moral heir. And 40 years later, Grant is remembered as a butcher, as corrupt and drunk, while Robert E. Lee is venerated as honorable, uh, gen genius, and patriotic. Uh, the myth of the lost cause. And so that mythology and that constant duality of what it means to be American. 1938, the Bund. Um, you have a uh, giant George Washington banner 40 feet high in Madison Square Garden festooned with swastikas. And so what is real, what's not, what's true. How do we get the country on track? And what is it that they need to learn and know about their civics and their history? To me, um, I think the Mayflower Compact is an epic event in the, in the affairs of, of human history. And it, it leads in a straight line, including the introduction of, of slavery onto the continent, uh, which is a profound evil to the American Revolution, which is really the before and after moment in, in human history, in, in my view. And I don't, when should we teach that to a kid, mm -hmm. right? When do we, when do we take them into school, right? And it's, it's an American classroom right here, we're to study the American Revolution, right? We're gonna, when do we do that? Mm, that's a great question. And, yeah, that's a great question. And here's here's where I think um, our current history curriculum could use updating, is we portray most of the people that we study, especially in the younger grades. We, port we, we, we fill our books with heroes. We fill our books with George Washington crossing the Delaware and Abraham Lincoln, um, you know, Emancipation Proclamation. And and of course, of course, we should study people who have done great things. Of course, we should. That's an important, that's an instructive tool. Um, but what we have failed to do is present any of these heroes from history or any of these events from history 
in their totality. So when we talk about the Mayflower, it is almost always related to Thanksgiving, right? Which we all know is if we know anything about history, like we think, you know, it's portrayed uh, it, to school children as like the Mayflower and the Native Americans and the cornucopia and the turkey and the pumpkins. And they celebrated, they were so thankful for each other and they celebrated the first Thanksgiving. That is the, the framing that young children are often given when it comes to um, understanding early colonists in the United States. So it's, it's right. So it's, it's such a good point, right? It's just, it's just, um, I mean, it's nonsensical. It's, totally. It's, it's total nonsense. Cornucopia? No. No cornucopia. <laughs> no, no, the Native Americans were so thankful for Miles Standish. No. Um, some of these things, as you mentioned, are, have become American myths. And um, what we fail to do is analyze characters from history for their important contributions, while also subjecting them to fair criticism of their negative impacts. Thomas Jefferson is a fantastic example of this. You can't deny that he made important contributions to the United States. You can't deny that he didn't start the University of Virginia, a fine institution. You can't deny about his involvement in the Declaration of Independence. Like You cannot deny that uh, his, you know, the Louisiana Purchase, like a million things. We can talk about Thomas Jefferson's contributions to the United States. But what happens when students grow up and find out that Thomas Jefferson uh, was an enslaver? Thomas Jefferson impregnated uh, Sally Hemings multiple times. Sally Hemings was his dead wife's half-sister. She came into their household as a gift from his wife's father, and she was fathered by his wife's father. Like his father-in-law fathered her. Um, you know, he she was 15 years old or thereabouts when she is forced to go to France with him, a place where she is free. Uh, but then he brings her home. The only slaves that he freed are people that he was related to. So, um, I'm not saying that we need to start teaching five-year-olds about rape. Okay. That I'm not advocating for that. I'm not going to, I don't, nobody think this needs to be developmentally appropriate. Of course. But young children are quite capable of understanding that sometimes people would do good things and sometimes people do bad things. That's not, that's actually just like a really, really basic concept that young children all understand. It's in every single TV show and movie that they watch. It's in all their books. Sometimes people do good things and sometimes people do bad things. And sometimes the same person does both. So I think that it's, it if we, uh, uh, frame it in that type of context of like, here are some of the bad things that this person did. Then when they get to be 16 years old and find this out for the first time, they're not going to feel lied to. And I can tell you firsthand that that is often how people feel. Adults today, I hear this almost every day, feel like they have been lied to, like the truth has been intentionally concealed from them. And that's not a healthy educational system. That's not a healthy um, civics why, why, system. Why is this concept so, why is this concept so hard to, to say that the man who wrote the most important words in all of human history regarding human rights was a deeply flawed, dare I say, hypocritical individual who did not practice what he preached, but was in a small group of geniuses uh, that set in motion the greatest drama in human history. Mm-hmm government of the people, by the people, for the people, where constantly we have been on the knife's edge. Mm -hmm. Why is it so hard for us to admit that he was a fallible human who did bad things? 
I mean, why can't we say, why can't we present it like that? Hmm. I think we can and should. That's what I advocate for, that we can absolutely be like, here is a list of how we know Thomas Jefferson was a genius. And here are some of the incredible contributions that he made. Um, and he is also these other things. He he admits to being a hypocrite. That's not even a judgment from our time period. He fully admits that he is unable to uh, reach the standards of all men are created equal, that he is unable to do that. And he, in many ways, um, he talks about how he feels bad about it. And he, in his letters to people like John Adams, laments that he is a he is a weak man in, in these types of regards. That's not to excuse him. That's not to say like, he was sorry about it, so it's fine. Because again, the proof's in the pudding. He doesn't actually go, he doesn't feel sorry and then take action to ch change his hi hypocrisy. So I'm not giving him a pass. But he absolutely knows this about himself. Again, he's a genius. So he he's well aware of his own foibles. Um, I don't think it's hard to say that. And I uh, I hear from thousands of people every day that I, it doesn't make me feel like the Declaration of Independence isn't a consequential event in human history or a consequential document in human history. I appreciate knowing the truth. So I think one of the reasons it's really hard for us to admit these things about our heroes has to do with um, mythologizing uh, America's founders. Uh, there is a belief in certain circles in the United States that the founders and the founding of America was divinely inspired. And that if you criticize divine inspiration, it is not quite but almost uh, akin to the viewpoint that, you know, the apostles wrote, wrote um, the gospels in the New Testament. Um, that's, you know, the, some what some people believe. And uh, that those were divinely inspired. And All of this would have, would have surprised the founders. It, it absolutely would have. Yes. They did not it's divine. No, no. In fact, if you if you read some of the later year correspondence between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson when they sort of like reunited as friends, and they're both like old men in their 80s. Um, even then, they were wondering to each other, like, I don't know, man. I don't know if I did enough. I don't know if I did it right. Like we would, we would today use the phrase imposter syndrome. That's how we would view it with our today lens of like, I'm just pretending to be good at writing a founding document. I'm just pretending to be good at founding a country. I don't know if I actually am good at it. You know what I'm talking about with imposter syndrome? This is something that a lot of people in business uh, feel like, I don't know if I know how to be a CEO. I don't know if I know how to do that job. I'm just going to fake it till I make it. That is precisely how they felt in the moment. Now that's not to say they didn't have, you know, they were, they didn't have any personal faith backgrounds. They did, but they did not view themselves as, um, you know, divine mercenaries. <laughs> they were not divine messengers. They absolutely viewed themselves as fully human and full of, um, they were full of angst about their own lives and whether they had done enough and been good enough, been virtuous enough. Uh, and often they arrived at the conclusion that in fact, they had not. And that's what I'm talking about with Thomas Jefferson, where he he acknowledges that he is unable to reach the level of virtue that he aspired to. And they appreciated, in a secular sense, the importance of virtue in a republic. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. They they actively studied, um, they actively studied the moral philosophers who preached. This idea that happiness can only be found through virtue. 
and not religious virtue, not going to church virtue. And again, I'm not saying that none of these people had had religious faith, but that's not what I mean by virtue. Uh, we're talking more about these like philosophical ideas of um, of tranquility, temperance, self control. These these activities that were seen as virtuous, justice. Um, that is how you would find true happiness. And these moral philosophers, you know, many of them ancient Greeks, were widely studied uh, by Enlightenment era thinkers and then later by, you know, American democratic thinkers. Um, so virtue absolutely was something they pursued. Benjamin Franklin is a uh, famous for like having, making a list of what the virtues he thought were important. And then each day trying to make a check mark next to the virtue that he felt that he accomplished that day. And then seeing regularly how he felt short, how he felt short of his ideal. I, I want to, um, I'll, I'm going to pose a problem on the, on the back end, but, but here's like what I think is here would be my curriculum. Okay. Um, I think the valedictory speech of the 20th century is the is the address that Elie Wiesel gave in the White House about indifference. Mm. I, I, I think that is a speech that this is this is what the 20th century was about. And, and it matters, right, because every century of human history has been deadlier than the preceding one, though we've had a big pause in the back half of the 20th century against the preceding. And that that sums it up. But the greatest impromptu extemporaneous speech in American political history is Bobby Kennedy in Indianapolis from the back of a truck when Dr. King is murdered. I think one of the most prophetic speeches, most optimistic is that I've been to a mountaintop on the eve of Dr. King's assassination his I have a dream speech, his uh, his uh, letter from a Bur Birmingham jail. Uh, there is the Gettysburg Address. There is the second inaugural Lincoln's Might Makes Right at Cooper Union. There is FDR's first inaugural, his 1936 convention speech and several from the Second World War. And to me, uh, along with a Frederick Douglass address, a Daniel Webster address from 1820, really are the moral canon, right, of, of Americanism, right? You can, you can, you can broadly, uh, there are, there's a, there's an address by Chief Joseph to, to, to Congress that that's important, but but there's an American there's an American canon um, that stretches out over our history that puts into competition uh, the idea uh, that we can be more perfect uh, at a human level, at a national level, that the union can become more perfect, that it can become uh, that it can become more just. And some of the most optimistic words are delivered in moments of great crisis. And you talked about the Greeks. There's a whole series of John Kennedy speeches. A speech he gives, last major address of his presidency uh, uh, at Amherst College, celebrating the role of the artist in American life, uh, tribute to Robert Frost, uh, his speech at Rice University, uh, talking about space exploration and scientific progress. That is a lot of re relevance to artificial intelligence. His speech about character, um, uh, the Arabella speech as, as president-elect. But we're talking about a time from 1960, 1963, where he's talking about uh, Greek philosophers He's talking about the lessons of the Romans. Um, you look at uh, Jimmy Carter, a speech that was maligned in its day, the, the, the Malays speech, but is actually very, very deep uh, reflection of American character. Um, you go through the 1990s even. 
the thing that I find most worrying is almost this contagion of illiteracy and incoherence mm. that when Donald Trump speaks or what passes for the dialogue today, completely exempting Trump, it could be Nancy Mace, um, George Santos, who had no idea who Harvey Milk was uh, as, as someone who claims to be a gay American. Um, complete ignorance, absolute illiteracy, and verbal incontinence on a good day to total incoherence on a on a bed. What's the what's the remedy to fix any of this if no one reads? Right. You can't even get people to watch it, watch a movie. Right. Like you'd be like, OK, you're not going to read about the 54th Massachusetts Regiment, like watch Glory. No, like two hours is too long to watch a movie. What, what, what do you do about mm. that? Mm. Yeah, that's a million dollar question is how do we how do we make ourselves better uh, when there's so much so many people who are um, reticent to do so and think that they are just fine as they are. How do you in, get them to embody these ideas of pers the pursuit of virtue, even though no humans will ever be perfect, um, that it's a, it's a worthwhile pursuit, which is what, you know, thousands of years of human history tells us there's a worthwhile pursuit. Um, you know, I would add to your list of American canon, uh, George Washington's farewell address, where he, you know, specifically talks about how, um, you know, excess fashionalism, excess factionalism will at some point become a potent engine by which cunning, ambitious and unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the power of the people. George Washington predicted what would happen uh, when he retired if we did not um, take steps to avert that crisis, that cunning and unprincipled men would usurp for themselves the reins of power. Uh, and I think that we can all think of at least a few examples from history of how cunning and unprincipled men have usurped for themselves the reins of power. It's happened before. And the only way to prevent it uh, is to uh, take action ourselves, right? Uh, there does tend to be this, this idea that somebody is coming to save us. Uh, he's talking about the uh, Elie Wiesel speech where he talks about indifference. And, you know, like he, he, in that speech, he defines what is indifference and why is it the most insidious of problems? And that indifference like, leads us to believe that there is somebody, a knight in shining armor, who is waiting to ride in uh, and save us from, you know, whatever terrible fate is about to befall us. And that, uh, that's just obviously not the truth. We are the people that we've been waiting for. Right. That it's actually up to us to change these things. So what do we do when we uh, encounter a situation, a moment like we are in right now, when we lament that uh, Americans are no longer uh, reading important works? They're no longer paying attention to um, the great speeches of history. They are no longer paying attention to moral philosophers or political philosophers who forward important ideas. And instead, we spend all of our time watching videos about cats on our smartphones um, or playing playing a candy crush what what is one to do <laughs> in that scenario a few things to think about the first one is that it has only ever been a tiny subset of humans who have read the moral philosophers it has only ever been uh, a tiny group of people who has been educated enough to read these things. It's obvious that you and I are highly educated people, whether that's through college degrees or from large amounts of reading. Uh, it's from caring about these topics. But that has never been the case in human history. And look at what we have been able to achieve. Um, when you're talking about the you know addresses of Frederick Douglass, well, as I'm sure you well know, and most of your listeners probably know, um, 
it was illegal to teach Frederick Douglass to read. And so uh, throughout most of American history, we cannot actually lay claim to this idea that all Americans were reading the Greek philosophers and pursuing virtue uh, when in fact they were more concerned about their day-to-day -day life, about making sure their kids didn't die of yellow fever or that smallpox didn't visit their village, that they had enough food, that they didn't uh, die of hypothermia because they didn't get the socks knit in time. Um, to me, rather than catastrophizing the present um, and being like, well, people today just don't read. It's a little bit like saying kids or people these days don't want to work. Do you know what I'm talking about? You, I'm sure you've heard the phrase people these days, just nobody wants to work anymore. Mm, people have actually been saying that specific thing for hundreds of years. That's not a new thing. That's not a new idea that people don't want to work anymore. You can actually find old newspaper articles uh, where somebody has written a letter to the editor and we're talking like mid 1800s. People just don't want to work anymore. Turns out humans like, actually- it's like, it's like old person's disease, right? Yes, yes. Get out of my lawn. Like everything yeah. is, everything's going to hell in a handbasket. But like, I can't help, like, I think like that if, I wonder if your average American heard a version of FDR's fireside chat on any given subject today. Probably did. Whether they could follow it in in the language in which it's given, which is right, which is you know English, not not you know not a not not uh not idiocy, right? And it's um. It's just it's just kind of this remarkable right moment. I mean, so what you're saying, and like my, I was just listening to you, kind of reacting to it. Like I, I completely agree with you. And the point is, like, if you were some past generation's equivalent of the person watching the cat videos all day, until this very era, right, this moment in time, like you just wouldn't have made it. Right, yeah, you, you would, would not have you eaten. You would not have eaten. Right, you would not have. Right, you would not have. You would not have made it. Right, and there's going to be a lot more people in this age of artificial intelligence that have a lot of time on their hands to watch cat videos. Absolutely, uh, that's one of the big advances of society. Right, is that we have now invented huge amounts of free time for ourselves. There's that. that there's that John Adams quote, you know, I, I must learn to be a soldier so my son can, my children can learn to be, I'm going to butcher the quote, but my, my, my children can learn to be merchants so their children can learn to be artists. Mm -hmm. Great, great grandchildren can sit idly watching cat videos <laughs> <laughs> on, on a handheld computer that contains the entirety of human knowledge. So, yeah, that's that the idea that the entirety of human knowledge is available in, on a little Amazing thing. hand. It's crazy. Um, the last thing I would say, um, you know, to that point, um, it's been like a real pleasure uh, being able to spend time with you, talk about these things. But, uh, you know, I think one thing that people don't appreciate is how young the country is. And one of the most mind boggling um, factoids that that I share with people that when I say it to them, they uh, they they just pause for a minute. And how can that be? Um, but the tenth president of the United States, John Tyler, was born in 1791, only president to serve in the Confederate House of Representatives. He has a living grandson. He has mm -hmm. a living grandson, the tenth president, born in 1791, and. I wanted to share a story about the history of the country, um, about Minnesota, uh, mm. with you on that I think is is important. Uh, and there's a debate that plays out uh, between uh, the state of Virginia and the state of Minnesota, Minnesota occasionally about a flag, and that that flag is a captured Confederate battle flag, mm. uh, and it was captured on the second day of the Battle of Gettysburg by the men of the first Minnesota. 
And, and the story of that moment is important to understand because when you think about crisis in America and the closest the country came, um, we came within 60 seconds of the of the end and the and the actual men who saved the country in that minute, in that decisive minute from its end uh, were the men of the of the first Minnesota. And the story is uh, that there was a New York congressman named Dan Sickles uh, and about 158 years before Donald Trump. Uh, claimed that he could shoot someone in broad daylight in New York and get away with it, get reelected. Dan Sickles proved that that was true. In his case, he became the first person in America to claim an insanity defense uh, after he shot his wife's lover in Lafayette Square. And so it came to be that he found himself commanding a union division as a major general uh, far out of position uh, with thousands of Confederates charging forward towards a gap which would have led them to the high ground, placing them between the Union Army and the federal capital with nothing to stop them whatsoever. So the moment of victory, Lee's gamble was was very much at hand. And a man whose best friend uh, was to face him the next day uh, in battle, the man who had been his best man at his, at his wedding, William Scott Hancock, gallops down the line. He asks, what military unit is this? There's no speeches. He simply says, fix bayonets and charge in the first Minnesota charges. And they turn back thousands of Confederates uh, with a few hundred men. 84% of whom are casualties, what to this day remains the deadliest action of a United States Armed Forces unit. Mm -hmm. And so that story is an important one to know because the country came within seconds of collapse. Mm -hmm. And we're not anywhere close to that line, though we're in a dangerous hour. And one of the things that if you're a warning subscriber or you share this website that you can do is to um, follow uh, Sharon McMahon, um, follow uh, the teaching of civics, uh, get the facts, know what you're talking about and read your American history. If for no other reason, it's the greatest drama that there's ever been. It's truly one of the greatest stories that has ever been told is the forging of this country over a 400 year window into the most powerful civilization in human in human history with all its glory and all of its and all of its sins and it's an incredible story and i encourage you all to read more about it celebrate it learn more about it and do everything you can to be a good citizen and to shape its history and its future. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me.